All glory be to Christ. What a great song. Well, well we're going to be continuing in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. And last time we, we met, last time we got together, we discussed the war against sin. And we talked specifically about the source of so many of our sins always begins in our hearts, always begins with the sinful impulses. Right? Even though we are believers, even though we begin in a new nature, we still struggle with the indwelling sin. The flesh still screams. Right? The flesh wants what it wants. But we are not bound under its power. We've been freed from the power of sin in our lives. And we talked about last week how we're to kill it. Right? We're to kill that, that impulse at the beginning. And we discussed how Paul in chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 5, how he talks about he goes from immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, gr- into, to greed. And greed is the root cause of so much of our sin, or, or another way to put it is covetousness. Right? And it comes from a lack of contentment in our hearts. Right? We, we want something other than what we have. When we want it so bad, we're willing to sin to get it. Well, Paul continues that line of thought here in Colossians, and he, and he deals with, basically, I like to title this section, The Victorious Life. Victorious Life. Or another way to put it would be, and I debated about these titles, would, is be the person you're meant to be. Right? Or be the person you already are. Right? We're already saints. Right? We're already called. We're already seated in the heavenlies, even though we haven't taken our place yet. And so we're to live, and we can live, the victorious life. Right? Colossians 3, 8-11. As I was reading this week, and as I was studying, I ran across an article about the Wells Fargo Sports Arena in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the USA. And in this arena, they, they have what, they, what you could call, or what they call, a disassembly room. And basically this room is set up, and there's things all in this room, and you can go and you can vent your anger. So if you're upset at how your team is playing, or you're upset at the other team, you can go in there, and they'll, they'll, you can pay, and you can get a sledgehammer. And you can destroy television sets. And you can destroy glass jars. And you can vent your anger. You can even destroy items from the opposing team. Or your own team. Depends on how angry you are. Right? You, can, you can vent your anger. And now it's been nicknamed by the fans as the Rage Room. Right? And now for, for those of us who have been around footy fans and fans of any kind of sport, we will quickly identify with the fact that we have seen and heard those fans that are they've lost their they've lost their control, right? They're angry. But honestly, hearing about something as a rage room, it, for most of us, it doesn't really surprise us, right? Because we know in our hearts it isn't a good idea, but we also know that and expect unbelievers not to act any different, right? They are, after all, dominated by their sinful desires. I mean, we're never surprised when sinners sin. And we're never surprised when unbelievers live an uncontrolled life. Because they act out their sinful desires and what's really in their hearts. Now the difference between us as believers and unbelievers is that we have been given a new nature. We have given a, a new heart, but we still, are, still have the sinful flesh that we struggle with. It still exists. But that sinful flesh, like I said earlier, doesn't have the power to compel you to sin. You can resist that indwelling sin. We have a new nature and we have the Holy Spirit who strengthens us. Or Paul says in Colossians, he strengthens us with all strength or or gives us power with all his power. So we can obey God and we can live a victorious life and overcome the flesh. Okay, 
So Paul is teaching these Colossians here that they are a new creation in Christ. They are complete in Him. They, they, he's actually said, as a picture of baptism, they've been buried with Him and they are raised with Him to new life. In contrast to the false teachers, Paul tells these believers that, that they are to keep a heavenly mindset and seek the things above. And we spoke about that in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1-4. through 4. That that's the key to the spiritual life is a, is a seeking, having your affection set on heaven and your future home and the glories of Christ and having your mindset, your thoughts dwelling on Christ. You see, the living out of the Christian life does require personal effort. Right? That, there's that bumper sticker slogan, I'm going to uh, let go and let God. That's not, a, that's not a Christian, it's not a biblical concept, right? Paul says to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is work in you. So who is working after your salvation? After you've been saved, who is it? Is it you or God? The answer is yes, right? right? We submit to God, right? We, we obey His Word, right? He works in our life. He renews our mind through His Word. We gain a greater knowledge of who He is and His expectations for our life. We obey and we grow and we're being conformed to the image of Christ. It's a process, a slow process at times, right? And sometimes it speeds up. A lot of times it depends on us, depends on what we're going through. So it does require a personal effort. It means, from Paul's point of view here, and specifically, as we talked about last time, it means killing the sinful influences, the, the sinful impulses in your life at the beginning. When that greedy, covetous desire pops in your mind, you kill it immediately. You squash it like a bug, rather than allow it to, to become more and more ingrained in your mind. To, and then you, you get that, that desire and that that passion, and then it goes into impurity, and then it, it manifests in immorality. It's that, that diagram I had last time, the concentric circles, they go out and out until finally it manifests itself in your physical actions. But what we're going to look at today, we're going to be looking at the victorious life, and Paul begins by describing an, another set of sins, and he deals with the sin of anger, and then he talks about how you can, you can live your life honoring the Lord. And so I basically, there's two points here. There's two points, let me go the right direction. And the first one is put off your old self. And the second one is don't live a lie. So don't live a lie and put off your old self. So let's go ahead and look at the text and then we'll dig into this a little bit more. So starting in verse, uh, verse 8, excuse me. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And having put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. All. So the first point is Paul says, he says, look, put off your old self. Look into verse 8. He says, but now you also. That but now is drawing a contrast to the previous verse in verse 7. And Paul says, look, but now you are different. Verse 7 said, you were once also, what? Verse 6, a son of disobedience. And you were living in your sins. But he says, now you're different. It's a contrast. That was true of you. You used to be a son or a children or child, excuse me, of God's wrath. You were one who was destined for wrath. It says in verse 6, you were a son or a daughter of disobedience. Disobedience to God characterized your life. That's who you were. That was your nature. Right? And then he says, your conduct in verse 7, he said, you were living in them. Them is the sins he's listed previously. Right? That was your, your life, your, your, what you did. So your nature was a child of wrath and a child of disobedience. And your conduct was your walk and how you lived in an indulgence of your flesh. That's who you were. So Paul says, Look, but now you're different. And because you're different, you need to act differently. 
I remember giving my, my dog a bath when I was a kid, and my, my dad and I, we'd get, we had a big German shepherd, and we'd give him a bath, and you know, you'd, get him, you'd get him in this big tub, and we'd put seven dust on him, which I don't know if you guys even know what seven dust is. You live around the farm, you put seven dust. It's a, it's a sulfur-type chemical, and it was a powder, and you mixed it, and it would keep off the fleas and the ticks, and you mixed it with the water. And we lived out in the, the bush, and so you had, to, you had to bathe your dog in this. It would help him to basically survive. The, the, the bugs, and so we were bathing him, and you know, you get him all clean, and he's, oh, he's, he's good, he's good, he's ready, ready to put the seven dust powder on, and you know, like all dogs, what do they do? They jump up, and they run right into the dirt, and they start turning over, and scratching, and you know, skewing their backs, and their faces in the mud, in the dirt, and you're just, we just gave you a bath, right? Because what is, why do dogs do that? It's in their nature, right? They get water on their face, and the only way they know to get it off and the water on their backs is to, what? Turn upside down and, and get wallowing in the mud or wallowing in the dirt in, in this case, right? It's part of their nature. Well, Paul uses that adversity of his. He's drawing the contrast. He says, look, you were different, and now, now you are not what you were, Right? He's, as he said in verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, you've been raised and you've died with Christ. You're different. Okay, and then in verse 8, he continues, he says, look, put them all aside. The word here is is to put off. The idea carries the idea of clothing, right? One of the things about the New Testament church, when, when they would go through a baptismal ceremony, Right, and a baptism is a picture of our old life and our, and then being washed with our sins and then coming up to new life in Christ. Right, what they would do is they would take off their their dirty outer garments. They would take off their inner garment, or inner garment, excuse me, to be appropriate. But they would take off their dirty outer garments and they would lay them down. They would go through the baptism and they would come up. And when they would come out, they'd be giving a, a clean white robe, and the symbolizing. The obvious, what? Your old dead life washed away the sins to a new life in Christ. New church would do that. The, excuse me, the, the early church would do that as a, as a picture, right? Baptism, to, to reinforce the picture of baptism on itself. And so Paul kind of draws from that imagery here and he says, look, put them all aside, right? No, he's already said, kill those impulses. But now he says, look, put them aside. Put those impulses, those, those sinful impulses aside. So if you, you squash it and you throw it away, right? Or if, like a, if it's a dirty jacket, you, you throw it away, right? When you were, when you were an unbeliever, you wore a certain type of clothes, right? They were dirty, sin-stained clothes. And you, when you're saved, you're, you're taking those things off and now you're wearing a, a white robe. Why are you going to go grab that dirty, sinful jacket and put it back on? So Paul says, look, put it aside, renounce it completely, give it up. And this is urgent. It's another aorist imperative for Jordan, right? It's an it's a, it's a urgent thing. Do it immediately. So squash that sin, put it aside. So you guys want to know how to be victorious over the sin in your life? It starts with the impulses in your mind, the, the covetousness, the greed, and as we're going to get to in just a second, the anger but you, you kill that sin, you kill that impulse immediately before you allow it to what? To develop Father. You, you cast it aside. You put it out of your mind, right? Look, it's like Olympic runners. The same thing with in, in the times of the Greek and Romers, Romans, excuse me, they would, the, the Olympic runners would run the races. And the idea is they're taking off, taking off the things they don't need. Right? Wouldn't it be silly if you see it? Even today, an Olympic runner show up and they're wearing like you know a three-piece suit. Right? I'm going to run the race and stretch and right. They're, they're going to no, no. They put off those things. What that encumber them. Paul uses this same terminology, the same thought in Hebrews 12. He says, "Let us lay aside every encumbrance and and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us." Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So that's the idea. Same idea here. Take off the encumbrance, that that sinful desire. Put it away from your your mind the minute it shows up. So you're you're killing those impulses, to continue from last week, and you're, you're putting them aside. It's the same process describing the mortification of the flesh. Okay? And the great thing about this obedience is that God always gives us the resources that we need to accomplish His will, right? 
So it's not like we just, oh Lord, I'm so struggling with this sin and it just beat me down and I, Lord, I can't have victory. You can. Right? You have a new nature. Right? You're not bound to obey that sin. Right? And you have the Holy Spirit giving you strength. So you, you kill it. You put it off. And then he lists vices. He has another vice list like, like last week. And last week we dealt with immorality and specifically how it comes out of covetousness and greed in your heart. Well, this week, and, and last week, sorry, we, we also dealt with it was actions first, and then Paul got, got smaller and smaller circle until he got to the very root of the issue. Well, in this particular verse, and in this week, we're going to be dealing with it from the opposite perspective. Paul starts with the vice, the impulse itself, and goes to greater and greater sin. And so Paul says, put off the old life. He says, you're different now. I guess. And then he says, put them all aside. Sorry, I didn't hit the button. And then he says, there's specific vices to set aside. So there you go, A, B, and C. I apologize. Okay? Well, the first vice is anger, right? Now, this isn't a settled or abiding condition that seeks action. He said, it's, it's to swell, right? I, I've been camping out in the high desert in Southern California, and you run across cactus, different types of cactus. And what, is it, what does a cactus do after it rains? It swells up, right? You go and you cut a piece off, and it's full of water. As the, as the heat and the summer goes on, the cactus will reduce in size, Right? And that's why the leaves of the cactus are pointed. They reduce moisture loss. Right? And so the anger inside is like a swelling, swelling cactus. Right? It, you, you have this internal motion. It's like a plant. It's a, it's a deep, smoldering resentment that becomes bitterness in your heart. You see, the thing about anger in the basic impulse is it, it's usually a response. It's usually, we could describe it almost as a resentment. Right? And from a biblical standpoint, when you, when you have a re- resentment, what are you? You're discontented, right? It goes back to even the covetousness, right? The anger comes from a discontentment or an, a, a lack of love for others, right? You look around at your surroundings and you're res- you resent, you know, what's going on in your life, right? You resent, I resent this trial, I resent this person, I resent this attitude, I resent all these things, Right? And it kind of combines with covetousness in one sense. I resent all these things and I want my life to be better. And you, you know these people. right? Any little thing can set them off. Right? It only takes this wrong word, wrong sentence, the wrong attitude, the wrong action, and they're, they're set off. But it's that, that impulse. And they, rather than putting aside that impulse, they play with it. They think about it. They dwell on it. And they become angry. Right? So rather than demonstrate a love for others, right, they're focused on themselves and, they're, and how they've been wronged and how they've been victimized. And they, it, it continues as a, as a, 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 they continue in the victim mindset. See, it's all about them. It's kind of like a volcano, right? When a volcano finally explodes, right, it's, in a, it's, a, it's a beautiful, wondrous, and powerful sight, right? And they're seeing one up close, pictures, but that volcano just didn't explode one day, right? Seismologists will tell you that, that it builds, sometimes years of building and building pressure till finally the pressure is so great it just explodes. Well, that's how anger starts. It starts with a resentment and a bitterness in your heart. That impulse, right? You, how you, how you've, um, in your heart, the impulse to respond improperly to circumstances and people, right? Rather than love people, rather than understand my circumstances are God-given, what happens, right? I, I start thinking about those things. Discontentment and resentment and bitterness, right? Married couples, it all starts here, right? It all starts with that impulse to anger. And then it goes on from there, right? So you have that impulse from anger. And it goes to wrath. Okay, wrath is a, a strong emotion, if feelings of anger. It boils up and subsides again. In Galatians 5.20, Paul says they're outbursts. In 2 Corinthians 12.20, he says they're tempers. 
right? It's, it's that, that emotion, uh, that, that anger that, that's under the surface, that impulse has now become fully, a full emotion in your heart, right? It's more than just a resentment. Now it's an emotional, uh, emotional resentment in your heart where, where you, can't, you can't deal with what's going on. You don't resent your place in life, right? You lash out at things around you. It boils up. It's like, a, it's like the old faithful geyser in the United States, one of the national parks you can go and visit. This is a, as a, it's called Old Faithful because it will actually shoot up a plume and they've measured it. It can be up to 32,000 liters of water, of boiling water, and can go to a height of 56 meters and it will shoot this plume of water every 90 minutes. That's why they call it Faithful because it's regular, right? Well, this is, how many people do you know in your life? They, they, you could call them the Old Faithful because you know that what? They're going to blow up at something. You're just waiting for it. Right? You go around certain, certain wives and they, they tiptoe around their husbands because they know something's going to set him off. Or, your, or children tiptoe around their, their moms because they know at any moment that mom is going to explode. So that impulse for anger goes to wrath. And then it continues and it, and it grows and it grows into malice. And malice, so it goes from, a, from impulse to an emotion and now a malice is a habitual mindset. It's mean-spirited thoughts towards somebody, a, a viciousness, an inward evil. It, it, it's a desire to hurt someone or to see someone hurt. Wait, we, we, we talk to people or you, you talk to people and, you, and you, uh, you see their actions and you hear their words and you attribute the worst motives to them. Right? You're judging their motives cru- harshly. You see, unbelievers think this way. Right? They think only of themselves. They look at others and they, they judge others on this level. Right? And you think about it, how ingrained it is. It's even ingrained in our tax culture. Right? You think about it. People, people right and left will say, oh, well, we need to tax the rich. Well, why? Well, because they're rich, and they must have stolen to get rich, or, or they won life's lottery. They don't deserve to be rich, right? It's a, a resentment. And then when the rich get what they deserve, they rejoice. Yeah, they get what they deserve. I'm sticking it to them, right? I mean, never consider the fact that maybe they worked hard all their lives, right, to become rich. Or, or maybe they have some gift, that allowed them to become rich, right? I'm, I'm not uh, Bill Gates, bless him. How many of us use his software? Brilliant man, right? He got rich doing something that really nobody else could do, right? So you think about that, how ingrained that is. But it, that's, the, that's the culture we live in. But as a believer, we, we don't have to go that far, right? We can squash it at the impulse. And then there's another one. It continues and it goes to slander, Right? Slander, I even put, yeah, I put the Greek word in there for Jordan. Just kidding. The word actually, the root word is blasphemy or blasphemia, and it defames or smears someone else's good name, someone's character. Right? In fact, the word, this word, you translate it into Latin and it comes out Niger, right? Which means black. And so it's literally to blacken someone's character, right? Gossip is a form of this. Right? We talk about someone behind their back to others. We're, we're hurtful. And the sad thing is social media. Like Social media provides you a level of anonymity. And it's amazing how harsh people can be on social media because they think they, they're anonymous. Brothers and sisters, refrain from slandering people. Right? Even if you can get away with nobody knowing that it's you. Right? Social media is not an excuse or, or not a, a license to slander somebody. Slander somebody's character just because you can remain anonymous. Or, or even exaggerate, which is often, I, I even see it sometimes in, uh, in Christian circles where we, we, we build up a straw man that's our opponent and we say things that we know aren't true in order to win the argument. Like, you know, we have brothers and sisters that did, and I say brothers and sisters, even guys and, and gals that hold to a, a covenantal view of the Bible. I'll let you guys look at that. I have a brother. Now, they, we disagree on, on different issues, but they're still our, my brother, I'm still my sister. And I'd be careful I don't exaggerate and say, oh, they're, they're going to hell or, or, they're, or, or they're apostate or they're heretics. 
just because they have differences in their theology. So we careful with our exaggerations because that's slander. We want to treat others the way we would be, want to be treated, right? We love others. We want to treat others with dignity, honor, and respect. And we teach our kids to do that. Right, you want to break a cycle of, of racism in culture? Teach your kids what? A biblical principles of dignity, honor, and respect of all people because they're created in God's image. Look, I was reading recently, it was kind of sad, there's a candidate in the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. He broke down crying. It was in a congressional hearing. And a group of individuals had presented this document which basically said that he hated people that were gay and lesbian, hated people with alternate lifestyles. And this particular gentleman is a Christian. And he broke down and he basically said, that's such, such a falsehood. That's such a slander. He said, I treat everyone with dignity and honor because everyone is created in the image of God. That's a great response. Right? They were, they were just trying to slander his character because of his views on abortion. And they were making it up as they went along. See, that's slander. And then the final one is abusive speech. Right? You see how this is growing? Right? It goes from that one impulse of anger to, to slander or blasphemy. And by the way, about blasphemy, when you slander somebody else, you're blaspheming God because He created them. Right? They created in His image. And when you slander somebody else, you're actually blaspheming God as well. You're slandering God, their Creator. So abusive speech, disgraceful, filthy, evil speaking towards another person. And this can be in the form of ridicule, constant belittling, demeaning words, threatening, manipulative language. One thing I always ask when it comes to my speech, or I don't always ask, I try to ask, let me be, be honest. One of the things I try to ask is, is it true? I'm going to say something. Is it true? Right? We're to speak truth to one another, not lie to one another as we'll get to in just a second. Is it necessary, right? Greg's, Greg's uh, shirt may have a stain on it. Not really, right? It may have a stain on it, but do I need to tell him about it, right, in front of everybody? Is it kind, right? Those are three questions you can ask when you think about your speech. Look, and one thing I want to say, if you are being subjected to abusive speech, just know that there is help, right? One of the things that I would tell you is don't neglect the fellowship, right? Be so involved in this local body that if somebody, a spouse or somebody, somebody in the fellowship or somebody you know is subjecting you to a, a, a abusive speech, just know that, that as a group we're here for you, okay? The great thing about us as a body is you want to be involved in our lives, holding others accountable, but also encouraging each other and comforting each other. But also know that you can come to church leadership. Right? Wives, if you're, you're, you're receiving abusive speech from your husbands, and husbands, it happens more often than people willing to admit, husbands, you're receiving abusive speech from your wife, you can come to the leadership in the church. Right? Because everyone here, everyone part of NCC is under our shepherding authority and responsibility. Right? My, my wife and I have people that we know where the husband... Um, was one of these guys that had the abu- was abusive in his speech, to put it that way, right? And, the, and one of the things we kept encouraging the wife to do is go to the church you're involved at. Because he was actually a deacon. And she, w- and she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't take advantage of the resources that she had. And things that end up continuing to escalate, and, and unfortunately they are now divorced. But one of the things that, that we believe could have helped is if some of those fellow Men in the church should have come alongside this guy and give him a swift kick in the bum, right? But come alongside him as a brother and say, what are you doing? How are you treating your wife? Are you, you're showing anger and abusive speech to her. So just know if you're struggling with that in here, or you know someone that is, that the elders are here for you, right? Now, I'm not saying anything about physical abuse, okay? You should understand very carefully. If it's physical abuse, God has given the police, the authorities, for the protection of innocent and the punishment of those who do wrong. You can go to the police. Wives, you can still be a, a godly submissive wife and still bring in the authorities to help you if you need to, if you fear for your life, the life of your children. Husbands, the same thing. You can, you can go to authorities and still love your wife, right? 
I'm talking about physical abuse. Right? So, so there, is a, there is a step there. So abusive speech is, 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 in, is intense. It's, it's reputation destruction. It's, it's manipulative language, trying to get people to do what you want them to do. It's even a kind of a threat there. And often, ladies, you know, for guys, the next step in this, usually from abusive speech, now let me back up with guys, it can manifest itself in physical abuse. Right? That's how guys traditionally act out aggressive tendencies is, you know, if some guy's on the street yelling at me and screaming at me, what's my first response? I'm going to smack him upside the head, right? For most ladies, that's not their first response, right? For most ladies, this is manifest, this abusive speech is manifest in, in, a, in a bullying, innuendo, gossip, backbiting, reputation destruction, right? That's the way men and women are different, how we, we demonstrate aggression towards each, towards each other. So be aware of that. Those that, ladies that are, that are older and more mature, that's why Paul says the older ladies are be involved with the younger ladies to help them, help them identify things in their life that, that maybe is sin, abusive speech, right? And that's why the older men are to help with the younger men, to help them, right? But it all comes back individually to what? The impulse of anger. Right? You have to what, kill that impulse and you have to put it aside right? before it goes to, to wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. The key to dealing with these outward sins is killing and putting away the anger impulse in your heart. You replace that impulse with something else. You replace it with what? Love. I love what Peter says in, in 1 Peter. He says that love covers a multitude of sins. Right? When we love someone... Right? We, we don't take offense at everything they do and say. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Right? That's the opposite of anger. It's love. If you love someone, right, you're willing to overlook those, those idiosyncrasies. Overlook the, even the times they sin against you. Right? I've been married... How long have I been married? 17 years, I think about it. Over 17 years. And you know what? There's plenty of times that I've sinned against my wife. There's plenty of times she's sinned against me. But we love each other, right? We ask each other's forgiveness. The gospel is evident in our lives, right? But there's plenty of times that love just covers a multitude of sins, right? Choose not to make it a big deal because I know that I sin against others myself. I sin against her. She sins against me. We still struggle with the flesh. So the key is putting off the old self. The second point, oh, I'm sorry, and I added this in for you guys. It's, I have an insert. If you didn't go in, there's some in the back still, I think, in the bulletins. I actually blew this up a little bigger so you can see it, and it combines both the impulses. And you can see it all starts with the root, and then it manifests itself in the fruit, right? Root and fruit. And I took this from John Kitchen's commentary on Colossians and Philemon, a wonderful commentary. And he has this in a, as an appendix. And I just think it's a beautiful idea, a perfect idea that shows you how the impulses are at the center and then they manifest themselves from there in your lives. Right? So you have social sins and you have sexual sins. The second point is don't live a lie. And we'll get through this. He says, look, don't lie to one another. Verse 9, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Put on a new self which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. He says, don't lie. And what it is, lies come out of the heart. The word here for lie is, is, is deception, using deception in your speech, but it also has to do with using your deception in your everyday life, right? Because what's, what comes out of your mouth is always a reflection of what's in your heart, right? So when, when you lie, you're not only speaking untruth, but you're living that lie. Right? You're using deception. So that's what Paul says, don't lie to one another. Don't live the lie. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't deny the new reality that is yours in Christ Jesus. Be who you are meant to be. Be the person that you already are positionally. Saved. Forgiven. Right? I remember when I was in high school, and I, 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 late high school, I struggled. I, I, was a, I was a believer, but I was enticed by the... the the desires of the flesh, and I, I kind of rebelled for a while. And, and one of my friends that I'd known for a while, a girl named Jenny, I remember she came up to me one day in my locker, and she said, you know, Chad, I didn't think you were like that. And she was referring to a particular event that 
she had heard I, I had been involved in. I said, she said, I didn't think you were like that. And you know what? You're talking about being cut to the quick? What's the worst thing in the world someone could say about you? You're a hypocrite. That's what she was saying in a very nice, nice southern way. I didn't think you were like that. You know, don't live the lie. Live, uh, if you've been redeemed, you've been raised with Christ, you're a new creation, you're a child of God, you're seated in the heavenlies, don't allow your behavior towards others to make you look like a liar. Right? You say you're a Christian, live it out. Be the person you already are. Right? And then, then he says, look, do not lie to one another. And he says, look, there's reasons why you shouldn't. He says, look, verse 9, you've laid aside the old self and its evil practices. Like we said before, he kind of references that again. You, you've laid it aside. The old self is crucified with Christ. Right? It's been put aside. It's been baptized. That, those old garments are laying over here, and you're on this side of the baptismal pool with the new white robe. Right? Don't go back and pick them up and put them on. Right? The, those bug-infested, rotten, dirty, stinking clothes. Why are you going to put on those after you've taken a nice, clean bath? So he says, look, that's been laid aside. That, that old and unregenerate person, that's the old self. And he said, the practices, the word here for, is praxis. It wasn't just a theory, it was how they lived. On a daily basis. That old life is gone. It's been laid aside. And then he says, look, verse 10, and having put on the new self, and that he goes back to that picture of clothes again. You put off the old stuff and you put on the new. And he says, look, there's an individual aspect where, where we put on that new, new clothing as an individual, but we've also joined together corporately, Right? When God looks at mankind, He only sees two groups. He sees those that are lost in their sin in Adam. Paul uses this analogy in Romans 5. He sees those in Adam and He sees those in Christ. Right? There's only two types of people. Unregenerate and regenerate. That's it. Okay? So you've been joined together in a corporate body. And you've laid aside those evil practices. And He says, look... You are being renewed. I love that. It's such such a great truth. He says you're being renewed to a true knowledge. Right? It's a process where God is working in our lives. Yeah, we're a new creation in Christ, but we're not yet what we're meant to be. It's It's a process where God is transforming us, excuse me, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Right? So, it, should, it gives us hope. So that even though there's struggles now, we know that ultimately when we're with Jesus Christ, we will see Him as He is and we'll know Him and we'll be like Him. Right? We'll have a glorified body. Right? A body that is without sin. It should give you hope and encouragement. Right? We submit to, to God's revealed will. Look, when He, when he says, look, you're being renewed to a true knowledge. We're, we're graining, we're growing in our, our knowledge here. It's epigenosis, right? We, it's, a, it's a fuller, more complete knowledge. A greater understanding, right? A knowledge that we gain by experience over time. It's a right understanding of this world that we live in and your place in it. right? As we, as we grow in our Christ-likeness and we grow in our understanding of God's Word... We can answer more better, to use that term, we can answer in a better way the questions of this life. Why are you here? What's your purpose? Why is there evil in this world? Right? How do I raise my kids in an evil world? Right? What's the main thing that people need? Why is there conflict? What's the answer to social, a social justice movement? All of these questions we can better answer the more we grow in our knowledge of God's Word because we understand who God is and understand His will and His ways. So we're, we're growing in our knowledge. It's a process. We're being renewed. All right? And we're doing it according to the image of Christ. Right? Romans 8.29. Right? I love Romans 8. Everyone always quotes Romans 8.28. And Romans 8.28 is a great verse. Right? It's a great verse in that it says that God works what? He works all things for the good of those who love him. Right? 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29, for those He foreknew, He also predestined, what? To become conformed to the image of His Son. Right? So God is working in your life. He's renewing you according to Christ's image. Right? He's, he's renewing you. He's, when you put on that new self, you're being renewed to be more and more like Christ. Right? So you laid, across, laid aside the old self and you put on the new. Okay? And then you have a new identity. Alright? A new identity in Christ. Look at verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Look, the word here, he says, there is not. That's ouk for Jordan. It means absolutely not in the Greek. There is no absolute way, right? There is no distinctions. God does not classify people into groups in Christ, right? The worldly distinctions do not exist. And he says there is, the word is comes, uh, so Greek word emi means to be. There is absolutely no way, there's no distinctions that are in Christ, Right? And then he lists these distinctions that we use in our world. He said there's no Greek and there's no Jew. He's talking about ethnic classifications. There's no ethnic classifications. The, the Greeks and the Jews hated each other. In fact, the Jews would not eat with Gentiles. They would not eat Gentile food. They would purchase it at the marketplace. And if they went to a Gentile country, they would shake off the dust off their clothes because they didn't want to bring any Gentile dirt into Israel. They hated the Gentiles. Right, Samaria was here. They would go way away from Samaria, which was kind of a mixed Jew-Gentile. They would walk all the way around it. Right? What did Jesus do? He walked through the middle. Right? So there's no distinctions ethnically. Right? There's no American. There's no Aussie. Right? There's no Native American. There's no Aborigine. We're all united in Christ. And then he says there's no religious divisions or or religious classifications. That's what he says, circumcised and uncircumcised. Because that was a religious aspect of the Jewish Jewish nature, right? They demonstrated they were sons of Abraham. They were followers. They were members of the covenant of Abraham. So there's no religious distinctions. And then he says there's no cultural differences. Barbarian, Scythian. To the Greeks and the Romans, a barbarian would be, actually it would be us. Because English is a is of Germanic descent, and they heard English, and or they heard you know German, and they were like blah 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 blah. Barbarian literally is a it's a a phonetic word that means babbler. Blah 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 blah. They were barbarians, right? Because it just sounded weird, and a barbarian was something they didn't have a written language. So you can imagine the the Romans and the Greeks we speak Latin and German, and we have it written down for centuries, and we have philosophers, and we have these Germans over there running around. They're barbarians. There's no cultural differences. And the Scythians, they were the worst of the worst. They were a tribe that came into uh, what's today the country of Georgia, into the northern part of Turkey and Iran, Persia, and they they basically conquered the Medes and the Persians, and or, sorry, they they conquered the uh, the Syrians. And they were brutal, right? They, they've got documented historical cases where they would... How many kids are here? They would, they would basically use um, human skulls as drinking chalices. They were brutal. So you wanted, to really, you wanted to really defame someone or slander someone? Call them a Scythian, right? They would have smacked you. Because that was just a, the worst of the worst. In fact, when the Medes and the Persians came in and conquered their territory, what they did to conquer them is they basically just got them all drunk and had a big party and then they slaughtered them. Because they were just depraved individuals. So there's no cultural differences in the body of Christ. We're no longer Romans or Greeks or Aussies or barbarians or Scythians. We're, we're not Americans. We're, where there's no cultural differences, Right? We're all the same in Christ. And then finally, there's no social distinctions. He says there's no slave or free man. One of the things that impressed the Romans so much was that oftentimes at the when they, when they would Christians would be martyred, you'd have slaves and you'd have rich people standing hand in hand heading off to be killed. 
Because in their eyes, they're one in Christ. In the world, there's huge distinctions. There's no distinctions in Christ. You know what changed the world? Changed the world, really? The gospel of Jesus Christ, right? In America, you know, we did away with slavery. It was the Christians that were moving in the abolitionist movement in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s with the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 who was Christian, right? That's what, that's what worked to end slavery in the United States. And I say this as a Southerner, right? Worked to, to women's equality movement. It's because of Christ. It's because of the gospel that said that women are equal to men, right? Slaves. It said it, it's the gospel that said that every man is the same, right? Now, we're talking about quote-unquote Christian nations because nations can't be Christian, they can be influenced by Christians. So there are many wicked things done by the British Empire, the American government, any government, because nations aren't Christians. But it's the gospel, the people that, that elevate all men and says that all men are created in God's image and there is no distinction in Christ. Every man needs the gospel. Look, there, there's, um, these are the reasons. These are the reasons that we put aside the old self. And we don't show anger to our brethren. And the last thing about this, he says, look, Christ is, is, is all and in all. When Christ is all, what he's, going, what he's saying is, look, Christ is the supreme focus of their lives, of your lives. Right? If Christ is all, what? You will be able to, what? Squash those impulses. Kill the impulses and put them aside. You'll be able to live out the truth of the Word of God if Christ is central to your life. If He's the most important thing. Right? And he says He's in all. You know, Christ doesn't show any distinction when it comes to those, further, those groups. Right? Christ doesn't indwell anybody less because they're of a certain, insert word here, ethnicity, certain group. Right? He doesn't indwell them any less. They're all equal. Right? And that's Paul's point here. Look, don't live a lie. Right? He says, look, put off the old self. Put off that old coat. Don't pick it back up. Those dirty, rotten clothes. When that impulse to sin, the, the covetousness, the greed impulse in your mind, when the, when the anger pops up, the irritation... Right? You know, we relabel stuff, by the way. We call it irritation or frustration or exasperation. Well, no, it's just when that anger impulse comes up in your mind, you squash it, you kill it, you put it aside, and you, you in turn, you put on the new person, right? You dwell on what Christ has done. You're content with Him, and you also demonstrate that love for others. Right? When we look at our fragmented world, we say, what's the answer? What, what can bring men and women together? different minorities, different ethnicities, different cultures. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Because we have a new identity, and that is a body of believers, what a new community in Christ. Every individual, just something to remember, every individual in this world is a victim of sin, right? We're also a perpetrator of sin. That's, so the natural craving for us for justice is out there, but that can only be satisfied through the gospel because the greatest injustice of all is how can evil man sin against the God that created them? That's the greatest injustice. And any injustice, any evil that we commit against one another pales in the evil that we committed first to God. And that ultimate injustice will be remedied when Jesus Christ returns to rule and to reign and to set things right. Brothers and sisters, you are different than the world. It's not your past experiences for good or for evil that define you. It's not who you are, whatever group you're in, that define you. You're now defined by the fact that you're in Christ. When I went to university when I was younger, I had a, a guy that we were, was in our group, and we would go to these footy games, American football games, great iron. And, um, 
and there was a bunch of us Christians, by the way, and you know, he, claimed to be, he claimed to be a Christian, and he would start yelling. When things go bad, he would yell at the top of his lungs. And it started out as just yelling. You were like, calm down, brother, <laughs> calm down. And then he, was, then he would start using like profanity. And by like the second game, we were like, we, we pulled him aside, like, this has got to stop, right? You're defaming the name of Christ because there's people, I mean, people we talk to, you know, say, hey, I'm a Christian, you come to church with me. You know, people who knew us there, and you're like, you're claiming to be a Christian, and you're acting totally against the character of Christ. And uh, about a third game, he continued. We just said, look, you know, we're not going with you, you're not going with us, either way. Right? We just disconnected him. Um, but the worst part was he was claiming to be a Christian. Look, Believers, you must live out the position you're in. Right? You must kill those sinful influences, influences, put them off. You're not characterized by what you were in the past. Don't live the lie. Put away the sin that so easily ensnares you. Like you can have victory over the flesh and the sinful influences in your life. Right? Be comforted that you can live for Jesus Christ. You have what you need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for grace and strength. Father, I pray that You would continue to help us to see the sin in our life as You see it. Lord, show us the impulses. Help us to to see them for what they are, the beginning, that we can squash them, that we can kill them, and then put them aside. Father, help us to live a life consistent with what we say we are. And if we say we're a Christian, help us to be consistent. Lord, what a, what a blessing and what a, what a great hope it is to know that you can continue to work in our lives. Help us to transform us by the renewing of our mind through the washing of the Word of God. And how you're in our, in our hearts convicting us of, uh, of the sin that still remains. Lord, help us to to give ourselves to You totally, to not hold back areas in our hearts that we like to keep to ourselves, our private, private sins, our private anger, private things that we covet for. Lord, help us to be focused on You, that You would be all in our lives. Help us to demonstrate that in our, in our love for and worship of You and our love and our worship for each other. Lord, we thank You just for this time and Your Word. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.